Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here. Uh, it's been about three weeks, I think, since you heard us. So thank you everybody for your patience. I was in Switzerland. It was a really wonderful trip. Uh, it was incredibly beautiful. Uh, it's the first time I've ever been to Europe. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. One of my favorite jokes by Eddie Izzard is when he says, I'm from Europe, where the history comes from. And it's all I, I thought of that joke many times on my trip. Uh, I was just looking around and thinking like, wow, this place I'm standing is a thousand years old. That is fascinating. As opposed to, I mean, I was amazed, uh, what was it, last year? Like two years ago, I think, when Jen and I went to Boston and uh, I saw buildings that were like 200 years old. That was a really big deal to me. Um, and so it was just a really great time. And I actually got to meet uh, a listener named uh, Davida. And he's a big fan of both this and Battleship Pretension. So Jen and I had dinner with him, and it was a really good conversation. And uh, so thank you, everybody, for uh, bearing with me, uh, as there were no episodes during that time. But we're back, and I will now welcome in my co-host, who I know you all missed tremendously. His name is Josh Long. Josh. Hey there. How you doing? Good. I know I missed me. Do, is is it a situation where when I'm gone, you just kind of shut down? Oh, yeah. I'm not around when you're not here. I don't exist. I always suspected, but I suspected it with everything. Oh, what? Like, I feel like, hang on. I'm going to shut my eyes. Oh, okay. So, what, did you, do, what did you do while I, my eyes were shut? I can't tell you. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... I can't speak to whether or not everything exists outside of you. Um, I'm not allowed to, to say anything okay. about that. So I, I think you should let sleeping dogs lie with that one. And uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. Don't think about it too much. Okay. Don't think about it too much. Well, I don't. I think you're thinking about it. I, okay. First off, Time to change you subjects. are clearly my creation. You do not tell me what to do. Quiet, Tyler. Quiet. No, quiet. See, I control you. If you, if I say you now have a British accent, then you have one. Poof. Now that's ridiculous. <laughs> that is. Now I don't think I specified bad British accent, did I? I specified convincing, subtle, and nuanced. Oh, I didn't hear that. <laughs> I, you know what? When I yes, when I created you, uh, you had bad hearing. Yeah, that's so, true. Um, oh, that was a weird tangent. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone. That's um, what happens when Josh starts talking. Yeah, I know. Hey, so, just think it could all be like this. Really, it could all be like this? No, um, yeah, it couldn't probably. Do you en- uh, listeners? Do you enjoy Josh talking? I've got good news for you. Head on over to the Televerse, hey, and you can hear him talking about the uh, the classic comedy show Get Smart. It's so, one of my favorite shows of all time, indeed. And so. they were nice enough to have me on to talk about it. and It was a good time. It's a good episode. Check it out. Yeah, all right. Especially if you like podcasts about TV, then hey, that this might be right up your alley. Maybe you didn't even know it existed. Now you do. There you go. I feel like maybe you can drop the mites. I think if you like podcasts about television, <laughs> then this podcast about television—it's probably for you. Yeah. You will like it maybe more than anything else. 
certainly more than the podcast you're hearing now, but I think that probably can extend to everybody given the ridiculous nature of what we've been saying. That's true. I should also thank, uh, is it Davida you said? Davida is how you say it? Um, I would like to thank him as well. He sent a very nice note and a box of chocolates, which I, I appreciate very much because I'm a big fan of chocolate. Did you finish them? Not yet. Oh, all right. I'm making them last. Drawing it out. So thank I, you very much, David. Yeah. Are they good? They're very good. All right. Yeah. It's Swiss chocolate. Come on. It's pretty good. It's great. It's pretty good. Um, it's also, <laughs> Switzerland's also where the chocolate comes from, the history mm-hmm. and the chocolate. And cheese. And cheese, too. Oh, man. And army knives. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I could be there with beer and cheese and cheese and knives. Yeah. The money would run out quickly. It is also very expensive in Switzerland. Ah. Uh, so that makes sense um okay so as far as announcements so i mentioned uh josh being on the televerse you can fi- i'll put that in the show notes uh so you can just click uh directly to it um and then also so people speaking of television people know that this is the last season of breaking bad and so i have uh two of our writers uh travis fishburn and reed lackey uh they are both writing about the final uh, season, but of course, as they write about, they're also talking about uh, the series in general, uh, because in the last season, it's always a time to reflect on what has come before, and uh, and certainly Breaking Bad deals with a lot of things that I think Christians can relate to, specifically uh, the concept of pride. Um, so yeah, uh, but that's not all they talk about. They talk about a number of things, and so uh, there are two articles up already. You can find those at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, I apologize, everybody. I feel like we've been uh, rambling a little bit, or at least I've been rambling a little bit. I am a little rusty. However, I also am recording this right after an episode of Battleship Pretension that ran for three hours. So not only am I rusty, but I'm also a little talked out. Um, and then Josh spent about seven hours just laying out in the sun. Just in the sun for no reason. Yeah, not drinking, not drinking any water. Like, Why am I here? Yeah. And you and you had shackles on, and yeah. it was like the old west. Yeah, I don't know how I got here. Actually, I fell asleep again, and then I woke up on your doorstep. It works out quite well. Whoever kidnapped you seemed to check your Google Calendar. Somebody is really respecting my calendar. I guess I don't know. I don't know why. Thanks. And they'll be waiting for you when the show is. Over. I'm just going to stay here and see what happens. Oh man, don't bring me into this. Uh, so okay. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Maybe I should explain that. None of this is actually true. Oh, yeah. People no. probably thought it started out with something true, and then we were making it up, but none of that's true. Yeah, I was, no, he was playing Frisbee. I was playing Frisbee, but that was for about three hours in the hot, hot sun, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little worn out, but I'm not talked out, so. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Speaking sure. of the hot, hot sun. The hot, hot sun. And, uh, and your, your love of Frisbee. Mm-hmm. Uh, has it ever been so hot that you think, I'm going to sit this one out? No. Okay, that's wrong. Because it's too hot today. It is too hot today. And it certainly was too hot yesterday. I, I have played in over a hundred degrees. So yeah. and it wasn't it didn't hit that today. Was I don't that think. rewarding? Yes. Yeah, I don't think it was. I, I think don't you're remember. incorrect. It I, might not have been. I think you've wandered into factual error. Today was a pretty good game though. Alright. I I can give you the full breakdown if you want. I'm sure that's what everyone wants. Stand by. Yeah, alright. That's a separate podcast. Uh, the just the the Josh Long Saturday frisbee breakout uh, breakdown. Yeah. I just tell everything that happened. It's pretty exciting. Yeah, you, know? you by yourself. Just all mm-hmm. right. So uh, then there was this play where so they made a really good a, catch. It was pretty. They cool. did a flick. Worked out pretty well. Yeah. So this guy caught it, 
And he uh, he ran, or maybe he didn't. I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. remember how it works. Mm-hmm. So I've never played. Fr- I've never uh, played uh, in their frisbee game. There have been times when I have toyed with the idea because apparently I'm good at throwing a frisbee. Uh, but there's so many other elements. One of them being, you know, being out in the hot hot sun that uh, do not appeal to me. It's pretty hot right now. Yeah. So um, it was wonderful in Switzerland, though. It was a 40-degree difference wow. uh, when I left and then when I arrived. And it's like, <laughs> ah, yes, I'm here I am, back in the valley. <laughs> so, um, okay. We've been going for 10 minutes saying pretty much nothing. So I will just uh, jump right in. And <laughs> jump right in. I feel like it's maybe a bit late for that. <laughs> um, so, okay, we're going to continue on with our... Uh, series of mini-sodes in which we were talking about our 10 favorite movies of all time. Last time we talk about, talked about Josh's number five, Annie Hall. That is available at the website and on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will now talk about my fourth favorite film of all time. Uh, I believe it... When I, when I, remade, when I remade my list, uh, this film moved up, I think, three or four slots. Maybe, maybe even more than that. I don't totally recall if it was in my top ten before. But uh, that is Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Now, I know what you're thinking, listener. You, you can't possibly be thinking this. Maybe. Uh, it sounds strange for me to say Charles Lawton's Night of the Hunter. Because Charles Lawton is, first and foremost, one I would venture to say primarily an actor. He only directed one movie, and that's Night of the Hunter. And so it sounds strange. Um, a conversation that I had with friends before was, is Charles Lott, does Charles Lawton qualify as one of the best directors of all time? Now, the answer is no. People instinctively, and myself included, will say no. Because he's he's only got the one movie. It's like, mm. yes, but look at the movie. Yeah. If you make one movie and it's great, maybe that qualifies you. Yeah. Who knows? Like, this one movie is better than the entire catalog of some filmmakers. It's true. So, like, what is that? I feel like that might count. Like, notable filmmakers. I love Jim Jarmusch. I think Night of the Hunter is better than the catalog of Jim Jarmusch. Hmm. And I love Jim Jarmusch. That's interesting. I wonder if you were to take all of the films of even like a mediocre director and you might be able to cut together one film that's better than The Night of the Hunter. It's Maybe. possible. Maybe. That'd be fascinating. Get to it, Internet. They'll do it. That's what if this if this if this show had a larger audience, there would be someone somewhere that would someone do it. someone would take all the Uwe Boll films and just make this masterpiece. And- oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> um But yeah, and so that's that in itself, there's just so much so many strange things about this film. And it's it's so much more unique knowing that it is the the only directorial outing of this very gifted uh actor. And so it leads it leads to all number all manner of questions about what could have been if if the film had been successful, which it was not. Uh and he'd been asked to direct another movie. Like what what could it have been? What if the next film was better? <laughs> you know, it's just as as people said. Um, you know, had the studio not hacked up Magnificent Ambersons, Orson Welles always said that it would have been the far superior film to Citizen Kane. Yeah, you know, which is such a strange thing to think about. Yeah, but uh, but anyway, so 
historically, I do not totally recall how I discovered Night of the Hunter. Hmm. Um, Robert Mitchum, I think at the time I had only seen him in the original Cape Fear. I don't think I had seen him in anything else. To this day, I really haven't seen him in that much. Um, and uh, I think I might have known something about Love and Hate on the Knuckles. Like, tattoos of love oh, and yeah. hate on the knuckles. Had and you seen uh, Do the Right Thing already? I had, yes. Mm. But that's the thing is, there's that both in the monologue and in the visual, that that is a reference to Night of the Hunter, right. but they never declare it. Yeah, that's true. And so, so you wouldn't necessarily know it unless you found it out some other way. Yeah. So I might have I might have just stumbled on it, like, maybe in one of my movie books that says it's, like, one of the best or something like that. So I mm. just... I remember specifically looking for it, though, because the... the Video stores in Nixon, Missouri, did not carry it, so I had to drive into Springfield, and I specifically found a place there that had it, and I rented it, and like it was something I sought out. And when I first saw it, I liked it quite a bit, but it was so strange in many ways that I just I felt like I couldn't embrace it. But I also thought that the fault was with me, <laughs> there because it's that type of movie that you watch and you're like. This is not hitting me right, but it can't possibly be this movie's fault. Mm. Because just look at it. Just listen to it. Look at the things that made that made a certain degree of sense. Look at the stuff that af- that clearly affected you. Like this is all it's it's almost oh, this is going to sound strange and I know that there'll be people listening that don't agree. It's like when you come up against the Bible and you come ag- come up against something that you don't like or agree with. And your first thought is like, well, I don't like that. Maybe I'll just disregard it. It's like, yeah, but it is the Bible. And if there's the stuff you do like and the stuff you agree with, maybe that maybe you can use that to kind of carry you through the stuff that doesn't make a great deal of sense to you in, at this moment. And that's kind of what I did with Night of the Hunter. Is I like, this stuff doesn't make sense to me, but the, the issue is mine. So you're saying that the Night of the Hunter is the Bible of films? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you know what? I know you're being facetious, and I'm kind of facetiously answering in the affirmative, but also kind of not. If a filmmaker were to watch Night of the Hunter and say, I want to make a movie like this, admittedly, even now, the person would not be a success, but they'd probably make some pretty good movies. Could be. If that was your standard, hmm. you, you could do a lot worse. <laughs> but um, So yeah, so I first saw it in high school, and then I since watched it... Uh, uh, another time with some friends uh, who they hadn't seen it before. And I said, well, let's watch this. I'm looking for the opportunity to watch it again. And I liked it more that time. Did we watch it for our movie night at some point? I don't think so. We watched, uh, from a Mitchum standpoint, we did watch, watch uh, out of the past. Out of the past. I, do feel, I feel like I watched it recently, and I'm trying to remember if, if that was the context. I don't know where it was. I would have watched it again. I don't know. A few years ago, uh, I did go... They were showing it at the Egyptian. Oh, that would be and cool. And so I went and saw it. And uh, that that screening is probably what uh, caused it to rocket up my top 100. Because there are just some movies that, yes, you love them and they're great. When you see them on video and DVD, they look crystal clear, beautiful. But then you see them on the big screen as they were meant to be seen. And in that moment, you realize, oh, this is... I've just been it like, I don't know. It's like you open a box and suddenly just all, all, all manner of things just come bursting forth. Yeah. And that's how I felt when I saw that movie on the big screen. That happens a lot with movies that, especially with good movies that, uh, 
that have been around for a while, you just don't you don't understand the power that they have until you see them on the big screen. Sometimes, yeah. even if you know they're good, I think sometimes yeah. when you see that, they're like, "There's more to this than I thought." Yeah, I mean, you—that's the thing. You think like, and I've told this story I think before. Uh, I saw Jaws on the big screen only once, and by the time I saw it, I'd probably seen it forty times. Hmm. And then I saw that. And I'd seen it widescreen, I'd seen it on larger TVs, smaller TVs, you know, full screen, widescreen, the whole thing. Uh, and then I saw it in a movie theater, and in that moment I was like, I feel like this is the first time I'm seeing it. Because, <laughs> first off, I'm noticing things I've never noticed before, having oh, yeah? seen it 40 times before. And that's when you realize, like, this is how they're meant to be seen. Maybe, mm. not, any, maybe not so much anymore, because now... When a filmmaker makes a movie, they know it'll be on DVD. They know it'll be on streaming. They know it will be on smaller screens, longer than it's than on the larger screen. So mm-hmm. I think, I think film a lot of filmmakers these days, uh, I think their films translate to the small screen fairly well. But when you go back to movies like ni- probably eighty five and before, um, when video was not an assumption mm-hmm. or a foregone conclusion. Um, I think if you have the opportunity to see a movie, even one you're incredibly familiar with on the big screen, always take advantage of it. Yeah. And in town, in places like LA or New York, it's, it's easier than some places, but if you, if you ever have the chance to, and haven't really seen some of your favorite movies on the big screen, there's a lot of, a lot of places around the country that do like to do sort of that revival stuff. And it's definitely worth seeking out. Uh, I don't know if you know, but your, I won't give it away, but your number one film is showing here in town, uh, on theater somewhere. I just saw that recently. So right now, not right now, but it's coming up sometime soon. I don't remember where, but we'll have to check that out. Cause I, I would like to see it on the big screen. Yeah. Having you... not seen it. I, I've only seen it once and didn't have a super positive reaction to it. So I think this would be a good way for me to see it again. Yeah. I've, I've, I've seen it in a screening room. That's when I first saw it. So it was mm. bigger than on a TV. Like for school, yeah. Um, of but, now we're talking about a movie that no one knows what it is yeah, yet. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. Oh, let's uh, yeah. Let's keep an eye out for that. Yeah. You might be out of town though. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Quick uh, note, everybody. Josh uh, got a job in uh, Connecticut. That so that'll last for two weeks, mm-hmm. and so there will be at least one episode uh, that he is not a part of. So sorry about that, everybody. Sorry, everyone. Um, okay, so. So and there's and then every time I started every time I made my new top hundred, Night of the Hunter just moved up and up and up and then finally when I made the most recent one it jumped up to number four. Hmm. Um, I cannot imagine it going higher, but you never know. It is that type of movie. It is the Bible of movies. Exactly. <laughs> Are you gonna say the? It's like yeah, the Bible. It's like my fourth favorite book. <laughs> you know. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of Tom Clancy. Um, so, uh, Dean Koontz got it, got, got it work out. That's going to be the reveal that, that the number one movie is uh, Some of All Fears or something. It's not a bad movie. Number one, though? Have you seen it? No. All right, then. Is it on your you top 100 your movies? I don't know. Maybe it's showing here <laughs> in town and we can go watch it. Um, so... Uh, when did you first see... Because you've seen Night of the Hunter before, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, I've seen it several times. Um, I think I first saw it because my parents had seen it, and they were like, oh, have you ever seen that one? And I had never even heard of it. No. Um, this is probably late high school or maybe even early college. And they were like, oh, you should see that. That's a good one. And, um, you know, I rented it knowing nothing about it. And then, sure enough, you know, it was fantastic. And... uh 
Yeah, it's 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 funny because I feel like that one has been a sleeper. Like when I was in you know high school and college, I know I knew a lot of well known old movies. Mm-hmm. Like I was familiar with a, a whole lot of them. Yeah, but I'd never even heard of this movie, and I feel like. In recent years, it's come more into prominence. You know, it's got the Criterion release right. now. I feel like it's talked about a lot more than it used to be, which I think is good because it's a great movie. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting to see one that I felt like at the time was something that I had discovered. You know, it was like one of those old movies that you find that you want to tell everybody about because people yeah. haven't seen it, but it's it's great. And there are lots of those out there. Like the the deeper you go down that uh, down that path of movies from like the forties and fifties, there's some great stuff in there that you've never heard of. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so uh, I guess we'll talk briefly about uh, what what the film is. Uh, so it takes place in Depression era, right? Nineteen mm-hmm. thirties, roughly. Yeah, and um, we have uh, if if you are a regular listener to the, listener to the show, you may have heard us talk a little bit about it already because we had it as a companion film to something that was before you came along. Actually, was that it? was the companion film for the Book of Eli. Oh, okay. So I, I must had, have listened to that episode then because I remember it. Yeah, it's uh, Sean Richardson was the the guest for that episode, and uh, and yeah, uh, Book of Eli. We were dealing with we were talking about uh, false prophets and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, and and uh, Night of the Hunter fits very well under that. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's an odd thing. Looking back, I feel like I uh, like I burned like I burned the movie, like I. I a whole episode, not even a whole, whole minisode, a whole episode could be devoted to Night of the Hunter. Oh, yeah. But I stupidly picked it. I, I, I burned it as the companion. It's, it, I use that term because like comedians talk about burning material, mm-hmm. which is they, they put it on a CD, they've burned it, they cannot use it again. Yeah. And so I feel like I, I, I burned it on episode like 20 or 21, I don't remember. And I just feel like, oh, I really... It's like if I had picked Last Temptation to be a companion film. So, yeah, this a ten minute discussion that 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 about sums it up. Um, But yeah, and so uh, so yeah, we have talked about it before, and as we move further down our uh, or up our lists, we will run across movies that we've talked about before. Um, But yeah, so it takes place uh, during the Depression, and the the. Initial plot is actually kind of complex, where uh, there's this family, uh, uh, a husband, a wife, and two children, and as the movie starts, the husband uh, is uh, arrested. And, uh, yeah, he's he's been arrested, and uh, and his uh, and his kids witness him being arrested, and his and his son seems really affected by it. And while he's in prison, and he has stolen a significant amount of money, and uh, while he is in prison. His uh, his cellmate is a preacher. We can probably throw quotes around that. <laughs> uh, Reverend Harry Powell, played by Robert Mitchum. And it's worth noting that Peter Graves plays the uh, the husband and father. But anyway, so Robert Mitchum as Harry Powell uh, listens to the stories that this guy is telling about uh, this money, and then the uh, guy gets uh, executed because he uh, killed somebody for it. So now Harry Powell who is then released from prison himself. He does not escape. He's released from prison, puts on his nice, fancy uh, reverend garb, and then he goes to find that money. Mm. And so he... And he does it in the most... Ugh. The most disturbing way possible. <laughs> because he he discovers that, oh, the... the it, this guy's wife does not know where he put the money, but the kids might know. Yeah. So... 
what I'm going to do is I just need to get close to these kids. So he he mar- he he courts the the dead man's wife, marries her, is horrendously abusive to her, but not in the way you might think. Just yeah. It, just manipulative of her. Yeah, he's very all of his all of his. He's never like a physically bad person. I guess towards the end, he it becomes more of a, a physical threat. But uh, most of his evil is in just how he manipulates people. And the whole yeah. he has this whole town thinking that he's this wonderful man and that yeah. he's such a great thing for her, for the wife, the widow. Um, and everybody's just show so excited about that. But the kids can see right through him. One kid can see. Right well, that's through true. Him. That's true. The boy yeah. can see through him. Yeah, so the boy, John, uh, basically what has happened, I don't think this is a spoiler or anything, um, but uh, the money has been put in the doll of Pearl, the the young, uh, the, the man's daughter. And so, uh, so without giving away too much, because if you haven't seen the film, I don't want to ruin certain things for you, um, the film goes through many stages. There's the primary introduction to the characters and the situation. And then there's a long chase where basically the Reverend is chasing the kids along the countryside. And during this time, you see some of, excuse me, some of the most beautiful imagery that I've ever seen on film. Uh, Because while they are ostensibly outdoors, I mean, it's clearly all shot on a soundstage. Mm -hmm. You see, you know, silhouettes on the, on the horizon. I mean, it's just, it's so strange there because it's clearly, you're clearly not outdoors. Yeah. And so if it were a lesser film, you would just be like, Oh, soundstage. Mm -hmm. Like that would be seen as a negative thing. Like Mm -hmm. that would detract from the viewing experience, but somehow it only enhanced it for me. And I don't really, I can't really put my finger on why, except that it's just so beautiful. It's just so shimmeringly beautiful. Well, and I feel like the whole movie has kind of this, uh, stark contrasty look to it. Yeah. So something like these, these scenes that might be uh, scenery that might be oversimplified in that it's in a studio instead of in real life still fits in that universe. Yeah. Like it within the universe of the film, it all fits together and makes sense. And uh, so I mentioned that there's different sections of the film and they change. It changes from one section to another in a way that would seem jarring. It's just sudden changes in circumstances. And, and I'm certainly not the first person, nor will I be the last, to describe the film as being dreamlike. Mm. And when you think about your dreams, I mean, how often are you in the midst? I mean, you're you're in a in a circumstance that is just it. It's dire, or or not. It's just it's very real to you in that moment, and it's very important. Everything that's happening is very important. And then suddenly, without warning, you're mind just takes you to a whole other place and and the tone of your dream is different even and that is how i feel for a number of reasons from a structural standpoint that's how i feel about night of the hunter is that you know these kids they are living at home with their mom their you know their their father is out of the picture and you know, and just like, oh, now there's this new guy. And, and it seems very straightforward in that moment. It seems like, oh, this is the story we're telling. And then suddenly they're on the run in these very strange 
places and just floating along the river and it's just so but it makes sense the -hmm. way in a dream it makes sense but the way you can't possibly explain to somebody when you wake up Mm -hmm. and and because and i think because from because the narrative seems like a dream i think the visual follows and anything that has that dreamlike quality oddly enough it makes more sense than if it were just told in a straight if it were just visually straightforward and so um so yeah, so that's the second section is the 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 chase, or rather the pursuit. Chase implies speed, mm. <laughs> um, but there's a pursuit. Um, and then the last section, the the two kids, they finally find a place they can call home, and it's this older woman played by Lillian Gish, who has devoted her life to just taking in stray children mm-hmm. and raising them in a place of discipline but love, mm-hmm. and. So then the last act becomes a showdown between this large, imposing, threatening man and then this meek, seemingly meek, weak, uh, older woman. And she's a fascinating character. Like, she's she's so enjoyable to watch because she is... Uh, it really speaks a lot to the depression, like the sort of people that had to bear up under these circumstances, and that's that's who she is, and she's yeah. she's coming through it, and she's uh, this 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 great strong female character, um, yeah. who is going to like she's never going to give in to this guy the same way that we have already seen a whole town full of people yeah. give in to this guy, and it's so refreshing to see like somebody who's able to see through it and who's going to stand up to it. Yeah, and she, I mean, you know, she recognizes the threat. There's yeah. a different, and, and she has a healthy fear of it. Yeah. But there's a difference between having a fear of it and being afraid. Mm-hmm. She's never really afraid because she recognizes, I'm the only thing s- between this monstrous guy and the kids. So, I don't have room to be afraid. If it were just him and me, I might be. But as it is, I'm in this position now. I'm in this role of protector, and that's mm-hmm. what I need to be the whole time. Yeah. And I do, and I will repeat some of the things that I said uh, in the Book of Eli uh, episode, which is from a Christian standpoint. You know, people have watched it, and and because Harry Powell is a preacher, uh, they view it as kind of a, a kind of a condemnation or or something. It just. Uh, an exploration of religion, but one that event, that is like a oh, what's the word? An indictment. Oh yeah, there we go. Like an indictment of religion. I don't think so, or or an indictment of belief. It, it might be an indictment of a certain type of religion, but or a certain type of mentality. But that mentality is not distinct. It is not specific to religion. Yeah, it's not characteristic of religion. Yeah, either. it can be. It can be anything. And the thing that got me was that, as you mentioned. The preacher has everybody, everyone in the town, just wrapped around his finger, and you know he says these things to his wife and to the townspeople. And because he's a preacher, they just believe him. It's mm-hmm. like he has this air of authority, even though a lot of the stuff that he says is just flat out wrong. Even when yeah. he's obviously his actions are wrong, but people don't know about that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the stuff that he says is wrong. Yeah, like biblically. Mm-hmm. But they don't know that because I guess they're not remarkably well versed in this. Mm-hmm. So they'll just they just take his word for it, which mm-hmm. from the point of view of a false prophet, that's kind of what they're counting on. Mm-hmm. 
Then you run across Mrs. Hooper, and she's she reads the Bible. She you know is there with the the kids, and and like she wants to instill this. She believes this stuff, and she's actively engaged with it all the time. And that's why she she sees right through him. Like he comes along with his his little song and dance about right hand, left hand, and the and good and evil. It's what he says in lieu of actually quoting the Bible. <laughs> yeah, and she and because he's giving the impression that he is this thing, but not really backing it up. Like she immediately, like it all goes off. Like just yeah. all the all the alarms go off, and so. In that way, I think it's like I don't think it's a I don't think it's an indictment of religion or belief. I think it's an indictment of like predators of various kinds yeah. using this thing, like the wolf in sheep's clothing, which, by the way, is a, is a biblical image mm-hmm. and one that the Bible itself says, "Hey, this is going to happen. You're going to run across people who are using this thing to hurt you, yeah, for their own gain, yeah, and you need to be ready for that." And yeah. so. Uh, whereas if the Bible just said, trust everyone all the time, <laughs> you know, it's just like, eh, it basically says trust God. And uh, not that I should just be paranoid the rest of the time, but be vigilant, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is it? An innocent as doves? Yeah. But like wise, not wise like as snakes. Cr- it's like crafty as serpents or something yeah, like something that. Yeah, something like that. And so, crafty is not the word. That sounds... There's, there's a negative connotation there. Yeah, that sounds like a very active thing. I'm going yeah. to be very crafty. But yeah, so basically I mean, embracing, like know that. <laughs> embracing innocence yet knowledge. Um, and so, uh, but that's the thing is I don't want to give the impression. So I brought that up just because I wanted to kind of reference the, the old uh, the old episode, but also just talk about one a fascinating dichotomy from a biblical standpoint. But here's the thing. I don't. This this might sound strange, especially given the context of what this show is. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that just like, oh, because the film examines this biblical thing in an interesting way, that's what's so good about the movie. No, the movie's just good. Mm. The movie's just great. The movie could actually, like, Miss Hooper could be an atheist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and the movie would still be great. Yeah. This is, this aspect is inc- it's incidental it's something it's a bonus yeah. for me and it's something that makes me love it more mm-hmm. maybe it wouldn't make my top 10 if it didn't have that but it does Co- you know fortunately enough for me mm-hmm. and so uh so i brought that up because it's an element to the film that i like but it is not the only element i see um so uh we should probably start wrapping up um from a, from a thematic standpoint, um, is there anything that like really resonates with you when you think about the film? Um. Hmm. I don't know, I'm trying to think of when I look back on it, the things that I remember liking the most about it, and the things that stand out about it the most to me. Um, I just think he's a fantastic villain. I think that's one of the oh, things yeah. that I love about it so much, and. It's. I feel like the villains that get you the most in the movies are the ones that you just see them consistently getting away with something. Mm-hmm. Like, I always think of... <laughs> this is a weird example that this always comes to me, but I always think of the villain from Dirty Harry. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and he's one who just keeps, like... He keeps getting away with stuff. And I, <laughs> it's a movie that I watch, and I'm like, why doesn't somebody just shoot him? Um, 
and it's like he keeps coming back but like maybe that, breaking bad is not the show for you by the way <laughs> maybe uh i haven't I haven't seen episode one of it but I, I i would like to at some point anyway um just the fact that you you know what this guy's doing and you can just see him getting away with it like step after step and there's all these people that could be blocks for him but they're not yeah um yeah and the only two people that have any suspicion of him are the kids. Yeah. And which no one will listen. To exactly. Them. No one will listen to them. They have no power in society. Like it really speaks to, it's a kind of a Hitchcockian, um, uh, uh, feeling or, or emotion that just, you're this person that no one will listen to and you know what's right, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So it plays on that fear as well. Um, besides just being a interesting dramatic story. And, you know, it, there's something else to the idea of him getting away with it. Because it's not as though everyone knows what he did, but it's too late. It's no, it's it's not it's not even merely that they don't recognize the bad that he's done. It's that they think he's the best one. Yeah. He's the best guy in the town. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how much he has them fooled. Yeah. And it's just, it's so, and I'm sure there are, you know... I'm sure there are people in our lives, they could be politicians. I know for me, there's a handful of politicians that <laughs> I feel like have everybody fooled by pushing certain buttons. But if you actually look at the things that they have said elsewhere and the things that they do, it's just like, this is, that's not at all what you are. Yeah. Um, but also people in our own lives and also maybe sometimes ourselves. I mean, it's very mm. easy you know, it's in in all honesty, I mean, I put myself out there in a public way as a Christian. And while I do try to be very honest about my flaws, th- there's probably a handful of people, a handful of listeners that I might be able to kind of capitalize on my image to gain their trust. And I know that that's that might be overstating me and overstating my influence, but just, you know, and but like it happens with pastors all the time, like people who put themselves out there as somebody who's devoted their lives to this good thing. Mm. And that just the fact of that provide gives them kind of a free pass. Mm. And the fact that like Harry Powell just exploits that to the absolute fullest. Yeah. But that he's a fascinating villain for a number of reasons, not mm. merely that, but also he does seem to Oh, <laughs> he believes in God. He's got this weird internal conflict. Like the first, one of the first times we see him out of jail, he's, it seems like he's gone to like a peep show. Yeah. Uh, like some kind of strip club type place. And he's like in the aisle talking about how evil these women are. Yeah. But he's there. Yeah. And it's like, it's on, you know, he's got some kind of conflict in him that he's choosing to do this yet. He's, He's calling it something, he's naming it as something evil. And then when he gets married, there's, you know, a situation with his wife in which she wants to have sex, which is a perfectly reasonable thing for a married person to do. Yeah. Um, But he specifically doesn't. Now, of course, there's always the possibility that he, of course, he only got married to her for this thing. Right. But at the same time, he's also a man and he has the opportunity to do this. Mm-hmm. So why, w- you know, to a certain extent, why wouldn't you? I yeah. mean, you're already a deceitful, horrible person. Why not take <laughs> advantage in this way? But he shames her. Yeah. He actually is sacrificing something that he himself might want or benefit from. And so you feel like 
he is in many ways kind of screwed up. Oh, yeah. Like, there are, I think there's an internal conflict, but also I think a deep shame and self-condemnation in him. Yeah, definitely. And he seems, he seems to genuinely believe in some way that he is doing the Lord's work. Yeah. But maybe has just never had the self-awareness or is, is disturbed enough not to realize that, like, the things that you're doing are are so evil and i think if you were to see them in anyone else he he it seems yeah. like he should be able to see them in other people as evil and yet for him the ends justifies the means and all this and so much of what he says when he talks about god mm-hmm. yeah it, it that's the thing is yes with him we look at him and see the monstrous things that he's done but what he says is something that i'm sure a number of us could say mm. and, ha- and maybe even have said which is, you know, oh, me, me and the Almighty, we've got an understanding. Hmm. Which is like, I, I understand God and he understands me. And what, what, in the case of Harry Powell, but also probably other people, what that means is God's okay with what I'm doing. In mm-hmm. fact, he even kind of likes it. Yeah. And, what it. and it ultimately says, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I'm going to pick a version of God to worship that happens to sanction everything I do mm-hmm. and encourage it. And it, and ultimately it makes us the final authority, not God. And yes, we might not all wind up like Harry Powell, <laughs> but we could. Yeah. Like once you head down that road, what's to stop you? If you literally think that God is on board with everything that you do, mm-hmm. then sooner or later it's like, well, he's probably on board with this. Mm-hmm this horrible thing that uh, normally I wouldn't say I'd, I, I wouldn't do it, but well, Hey, God's on my side now, <laughs> the almighty and I have an understanding. Yeah. And so I, I think that aspect of him makes him so much more interesting of a villain, because if yeah. he were just someone who was using the, the using the position, like just pretending to be a priest and not believing in any of it, right. or uh, sorry, a preacher to gain people's trust and like purposefully, uh, masquerading as that to be right. something. Yes, I am a criminal who doesn't believe in God, but I will put this on to gain people's trust. Right. Then he's not quite so interesting. Yeah, but this character is so much more interesting because he has this weird, dark internal struggle, and we get to kind of see the way that plays out. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's a wonderful performance by Robert Mitchum. Yeah, I like definitely. him a lot as an actor, but he is somebody who at the time, and since then, I mean, people, when they talk about Hollywood cool. Mm-hmm. They do talk about Robert Mitchum. Yeah. He always had kind of an aloof quality to him. Yeah. It's, it's what made him such a good film noir actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's usually his sort of thing. Like, that's mostly what he plays. Yeah. But for him to... I mean, he literally will do anything that Charles Lawton needed him to do. It Sometimes it made him look foolish. Sometimes mm-hmm. it made him look dumb or just purely animalistic. He certainly never looks cool and collected. Yeah. Even when the character is at, is at his most confident. You know, because as he gains the trust of other people, he often has to be a little corny. Like, he goes, ah, oh my, that fudge smells yummy. Like, that's a <laughs> thing Robert Mitchum had to say. Um, and so, it would have been easy for him to kind of hold back a little bit and be like, yeah, I'll play this, but I'm Robert Mitchum. Come mm-hmm. on. I could be smoking a cigarette right now. Um <laughs> If I wanted. Yeah, but he doesn't. No. He commits fully, and and I think it's... I do like him a lot as Max Cady. I think he's pretty great uh, in Cape Fear, but this is obviously the best performance of his career. I think so. I, I mean, 
I don't like to necessarily speak in hyperbole that way, but I think that's probably true. I mean, I can't think of one that I like more. <clears throat> I mean, he's pretty good in Scrooged. Um, <laughs> I wasn't aware he's in that. <laughs> yeah, he plays uh, like the head of the network or something like that. But, um, but yeah, and so uh, so I feel like we we should we should move on and. And that's the thing. There are things that the film explores that I don't. I don't. I, to this day, I've seen it no, numerous times, and you know, I like to think a lot about things. But to this day, I don't totally know what the film is trying to do or say, because I remember the very first time I saw it, and every time I see it, there. Okay, so early on, when the guy is arrested in front of his children. And his son is like begs for the kids to, sorry, begs for the cops to not arrest his dad. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's that's sad. And then cut to near the end of the movie, when spoilers, the preacher is caught by the cops. Oh, and as they arrest him, the kid is watching, and. And it's the same. He says the same thing. He he starts begging the kid. The I keep saying kids. He start he he starts begging the cops not to take this man that would have slit his throat various times throughout the film. Mm. This guy who's been nothing but a threat. But when the time comes and he's being taken away, this kid can't can't take it. And there are echoes of his father. And mm. it's like, I mean, I think it's like. I, I feel like I can't even begin to comprehend. Here's the thing. It makes a certain type of sense, but I can't figure out what kind of sense it makes. Mm. It is, it's like somehow emotionally true in a way that my brain can't figure out. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, and I remember the first time I watched that, I, I like, I made an, I was watching it alone. I made an audible noise (laughs) that second time. I was like, Oh, yeah, because just somehow in that moment, like you, you realize how screwed up the kid is now. Yeah, but at the same time, he's also in safe hands now with Mrs. Hooper. But in that moment, you just realize, like, oh, there, like there has been so much damage done here, mm-hmm. and I don't think I realized it because the kid had to just keep going. But now that he is kind of safe and the threat has been neutralized, now we are able to really reflect on just what has been done to him. Yeah, and it's it is a little unusual for a movie from that time especially to to not tie everything up in a neat bow. And it still yeah. does have kind of a, a happy denouement, but the yeah. just the idea that th- this is still in this kid. Like that doesn't get resolved. Yeah. The fact that he has that strong of an emotional reaction to something like that. Yeah. It's man. Oh, I've got look at this. I got goosebumps just talking about it. Um <laughs> It's it's that kind of movie. I mean, you could talk about any number of scenes uh, and any any single image here and there. Like the film is just made up of all of these things, but it's more than just the sum of its parts, obviously. Um, and it's just a, if you haven't seen Night of the Hunters, seek it out. Probably seek it out on Criterion Blu-ray if you can, and uh, and enjoy because. But be ready because it is not a film that can be passively watched. Mm-hmm. So okay. I think uh, we're done. I think so. Um, yeah, so Josh will not be here next week. So, And I don't yet totally... I have an idea of what we might be doing, but um, but I'm, that's not for sure yet, so I won't, I won't say it now. So uh, I'll just say thank you, everybody, for listening. Josh, thanks for being here. You're welcome. And we'll get you next time. Bye.